turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 33. Our text this morning is Genesis 33, the story of the long-awaited reuniting of Jacob and Esau. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is inerrant. The word of the Lord is sufficient. And the word of the Lord is authoritative. Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming. And four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. And Leah with her children. And Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times. Until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly, at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are here with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar, and he called it El Elohe 
Israel. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we, we ask this morning that you would teach us from your word. That you would remind us that you have spoken in these words. That you have inspired them by the power of your Holy Spirit. Teach us, O Lord, that we might be changed. That we might obey you. And that we might follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, if you could lower that a little, I'm getting some echo. Last week, Pastor Rankin took us through the story of Jesus Christ, our brother. How Jesus commiserates with us. He knows who we are because He is our brother. This week we see brothers of a different sort. I dare say brothers that we are more used to seeing in our households. Brothers who argue. Brothers who fight. Brothers who threaten one another. Who trick one another. Who take things from one another. And so now these brothers are grown. They have grown up bruising and battering one another so badly that one of them had to flee for his life and was gone for 20 years. How on earth could they ever come to terms again? How could they ever become a family? What magic words could they say? What great deeds could they do for one another? What giant tears could they cry? The answer is they can't. But praise be to the Lord. This is a wonderful example how God does reconciliation. This is a picture of how God reconciles people one to another. How he, recognize, how, how he reconciles even sinners one to another. Because you see, by the end of the chapter, we will see that Jacob nor Esau are perfect. We will see specifically that there are old remnants of sin that remain, but in spite of that, God is mightily at work. Our chapter this morning breaks down really into two halves. Verses 1 through 11 and 12 through 20. And in the first half, we will see two people who are reconciled by God. It is only the work of the living God that could accomplish this. And then the second thing we will see is that renewal, that process of becoming more and more like Jesus, of being sanctified, that that takes time. It's been a long time that Jacob has been on this road, but he hasn't arrived yet. And I trust that this will both encourage us and convict us as we travel that same journey. Reconciled by God, renewal takes time. Well, let's begin then by looking at the reconciliation that God is bringing about. And you see, reconciliation begins first with an act of humbling. Because there is nothing that keeps us separate from others like pride. Pride is when we see ourselves as being better than others, more worthy than others, more deserving than others. 
and it leads inevitably to conflict. But Jacob had been humbled by God's work in his life, in him. The first place that we saw this very dramatically was at Peniel. Jacob had been afraid of this meeting. You remember the scene. He was pacing back and forth, could not sleep. And God met him there at Peniel. And you see, Jacob had been someone who wanted reconciliation, but didn't really know how to bring it about. He wanted to go home. He wanted to see his father and his mother, and I think even his brother. Because you see, he also knew he was a changed man. He looked back on his life with regret. Do you do that at times? Do you think about all the things you said to a sibling or a parent or a child? Say, I wish I hadn't have said that. Isn't there some kind of way back machine that can, can take me back and I'll go through that day and just, just keep my mouth shut? Well, there isn't. Perhaps it's something that you left unsaid. How you didn't make time. How you didn't engage with someone and how that hurt them and now you have a strained relationship. This is how Jacob felt. But he also knew not only that he wanted home, but that he was different. He knew he wasn't the same man that obtained the birthright for a bowl of stew. He wasn't the same man who put on the skins to fool his father. He wasn't the same man who thought he could resolve these issues by running away. No, God had met Jacob. He had met him in 20 years of hard labor at Bethel and at Peniel. Jacob knew he was different. And because he was different, he had a hope. He hoped Esau was different too. You see, for when the Lord works in our lives and shows us how miserable sinners like we are can change, we cannot help but have hope that God can change others. Because you see, you know the truth and the reality of this. As much as you look on the television or read in the magazines or in the papers of how horrible the people out there are, you know your own heart better than anyone else. You know that you are a horrible sinner. That you have disobeyed the Lord. That you have sinned against Him and against others. In ways that are so dark and black and hidden that no one, not even those closest to you, can know and understand. And if God can step into your life and bring you to Himself and change you, then we must believe that God can change anyone through the power of the gospel. We must never look out and say, they are too far gone. Let's not waste our time with them. The Lord changes the wicked city of Nineveh, the killer Paul. God is at work today as much as he was in Bible times. And just as Jacob hoped that Esau had been touched by the power of the Lord, so we should hope for our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, and our friends. Do you have that kind of hope? Has the Lord changed your outlook? Has He done this through a work 
in you. Because you see, the work was not just done at Peniel. It was also done in Jacob's heart. Because you see, it was not primarily the circumstances that had changed for Jacob. He was still a fugitive on the run, as it were. He was still the one who had stolen the blessing. He was still the one that had to confront his brother. No, what had changed was not the circumstances. It was Jacob's heart. He now understood Esau's plight. He understood why Esau was upset. Even if we might say that no matter how upset you are, you shouldn't threaten to kill your brother. Take note of this here, young people. He understood now why Esau would be upset with him. And I think he would say to himself, Esau had a right to be upset with me. I had tricked him. I had deceived him. I had not trusted the Lord. And you see, that gave him an entirely new perspective on life. Jacob, I think, has finally come to a place where many of us need to be. He had stopped blaming others for his problems. You see, he had done a lot of that. He blamed his father for not loving him as much as his brother. He blamed his brother for wasting the birthright. Perhaps even as he labored hard labor, he blamed his mother for sending him away. And then when he gets married, he blames Laban. He blames everyone. But God has said to him, Jacob, this is all of your doing. These circumstances around you might not be pretty, but you have to understand you're not pretty either. The first step to reconciliation, the first step to reconciliation with God is to recognize and take responsibility for our sin. Not everything is your parents' fault. Not everything is your wife's fault. Or your husband's fault. Or your children's fault. Plenty. Most. In many cases all. Is your fault. And my fault. You see we have to begin there. Because you see we cannot change other people. Jacob knows he cannot change Esau. But he can change his own reactions. He can be prepared by the Lord. In his heart. And so, in a very practical way then, Jacob, who has been humbled, begins this course of reconciliation. He has had this wonderful vision at Peniel. He has met the Lord. The Lord wrestled with him and gave him a blessing and told him that he would protect him. It's this wonderful spiritual mountaintop experience. Have you ever had one of those? Now, I don't mean have you wrestled with God. And had your hip thrown out of placement. I mean, have you ever been deep in prayer? Or have you ever been really struck as you read the scriptures? Or truly blessed by a conversation with someone else? So much so that you don't want it to end. And then you, you go to sleep. And what happens next? You have to get up. You have to get dressed. You have to go to work. You have to do school. Real life goes on. And that's what happens to Jacob. 
Now, I want you to see how important this is. He's had this life-changing experience, but the life-changing experience, all it does is prepare him to obey God the next day and the day thereafter. You see, God meets with us to help us in our way of obedience, to give us great encouragement. This great meeting with the Lord at Peniel has not changed the circumstances. Esau is still coming down the road. Jacob still has to get up, get ready, and go meet him. Jacob still has to deal with all of the consequences of his past sin. But he does it with great confidence. Because God is with him. You see, I think sometimes we mistake God's role in the life of a Christian. We think that it is to take all of the difficulties of life out of our way. After all, that's why some preach that God is there to make you wealthy. So you never have to worry about anything. God is there to make you healthy. So you never have to worry about sickness. God is there to give you perfect relationships, marriage, parenting. Because, of course, that smooths out our lives. But the reality is, God does not take the difficulties of life out of our way. But He promises and He acts such that He is with us every step of the way. And that is the real blessing. And so the next day, Jacob gets up and he goes to go speak to Esau. And we have to remember that God's provision for us often makes our lives harder in the short term. If God would have not been with Jacob, if God would have not encouraged him, Jacob might have lingered or he might have gone the wrong way. But you see, because God has been with him and God has told him what he must do, he faces difficulty. Often, when God is with us, it makes life more difficult in the short term. Jacob has been humbled by God's work in him, but we also see that Jacob now has been humbled by God's work in Esau. There is still a remnant of fear in Jacob. Can you see it? After a, way, after a fashion, I love passages like this because it reminds me that Bible people are real people. You see, if this were a Hollywood movie, Jacob would have had the confrontation with God at Peniel. He would have been emboldened and he would have gone boldly with no fear and no thought. <coughs> and we would have all said, wow, we can't do that. But instead, Jacob's a real person. He gets up and he says, I've got to do this. Perhaps even in his morning devotions, he says, Lord, I need you this morning. I don't know if I can do this. I can only do it if you're with me. And then he starts thinking. And he says, okay, what I need to do here is I need to, I need to hedge my bets a little. I need to be smart. We might even say that perhaps he fooled himself by saying, I need to be a wise steward of what the Lord has given to me. And so what does he do? He then divides up his family into groups, putting, quite frankly, the ones he likes least in the front and the ones he likes best in the back. Now, we see this in the text and we see him lining up the companies and doing this and we get that. But here's the issue. Can you imagine what it would be like in the house the next day? 
I got to be at the back because Dad loves me the most. Hey, how come we got to be at the front? You see, right here we begin to see what we're going to see chapter after chapter after this, the problems in Jacob's household because he loves some more than others. Parents, do not let that ever be said of you. There will be children that you will have that will try you and test you and tempt you. They will be nothing like you. Or they'll be exactly like you. And either way, they will drive you crazy. But you have to let every single one of your children know that they are loved. And so what happens here is that Jacob sets them up and yet he's not so afraid that he's not going to take responsibility because, you see, Jacob goes to the head of the line. I think sometimes when we look at this text, we insert for ourselves that Jacob puts everybody there and then he goes at the back. No. Notice what happens here in verse 3. He himself went on before them. He is taking all of the risk. And so he goes up and he does this odd thing. He bows seven times before his brother Esau. Now, the interesting thing here is this is a standard way that you would treat a tribal king. You would bow down before him seven times to let him know that he was your better, that he was the one in authority, that you were deferring to him. But there's a problem with this. Don't you remember Genesis chapter 27 and verse 29, the prophecy? Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Jacob is doing the exact opposite of what he should be doing. After all, if Jacob were a modern American, he should stroll in. And even though Esau has 400 men, take charge of the situation. Hey, Esau, get down here. Remember me? The birthright? The blessing? The bowing? Come on, now. Now, I think we're practical enough to understand that probably if that were to happen, there'd be small pieces of Jacob scattered about. But you see, he doesn't begin from a place of authority and strength and trying to intimidate. Instead, he begins with a place of humility. And he's, if we can put it this way, rewarded for that. Because you see, he came into this afraid, not knowing what would happen, not knowing what he would face. And then he hears the answer to this question. What is there that God can't do? And the answer here is nothing. Because what happens is, Esau does something completely unexpected. Now, I don't want you to lose sight of this because you know the story from the days of Sunday school. And we all know how it comes out. Esau gets down off of his horse. He embarrasses himself in front of his 400 men and he runs up and grabs his brother who has tricked him, deceived him, and run away for 20 years and he grabs him and gives him the biggest bear hug you can imagine and cries and kisses him. It's completely unexpected. 
It's such a full showing of forgiveness and reconciliation that I am absolutely convinced that this is exactly the scene that our Lord was thinking of in Luke 15 where he's describing the parable of the prodigal son. Look at the language in 15.20. Luke 15.20. It is virtually identical to this language. There is complete and utter forgiveness between the brothers. How wonderful that they do not let their pride get in the way. How wonderful that they do not let their social standing get the way. And how wonderful that they do not let their sin get in the way. There's no more jealousy. There's no more hurt. There's even a small glimpse of how this acts out. You see, it says that Esau ran to meet him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And this takes on special significance when we remember that Jacob betrayed him with a kiss. When he kissed his father in order to get the blessing. And now they are no longer rivals anymore. Esau is genuinely happy for Jacob. And struggling to see who is better. They're, they're not fighting over any stuff. There's this almost comical scene. You take the stuff. No, I don't want the stuff. No, really take the stuff. There's so much of a desire here to go out for the other person. I want you to notice this, that Jacob actually says in front of the 400 men to Esau, no. Esau says, take these back. I don't need them. And he says, no. You keep them. That's how strongly I feel about this. Jacob has been humbled by the work in Esau. And the last thing that we see here is that Jacob has been humbled by God's blessing. You see, Jacob knows he has not gotten to this place on his own. He has, I think, a temptation here to take the credit. Esau walks up to him and he says, What's with all this? What's with all the ladies? And what's with all the kids? And what's with all of this wealth? What is with this? Now, before we answer that for Jacob, I want to take you back in your mind's eye to something maybe you've done in your own life or you've seen or read about. I want you to imagine that this is not Jacob and Esau in the desert meeting, but I want you to imagine that this is you at your high school reunion. And someone says to you, Wow, you've done pretty well for yourself. Look at your spouse. Wow. Oh, let me see pictures of your kids. Ooh, what kind of a job do you have? Ooh, what kind of a car do you drive? And what is our temptation? Our temptation is not only to take credit for all of these things, but even to juice it up a little. Right? Somehow, in the way it's described, our eight-year-old vehicle becomes a brand spanking new car. Somehow, our home that is a blessing and serviceable becomes just nigh of a mansion. Somehow, the job that we were just complaining last week about becomes a place where we're movers and shakers and nobody can do without us. Right? This is what Jacob is faced with here. How does he answer the question? 
He answers it the way we should answer every question when someone comes to us and says, wow, things have worked really well for you. He says, the Lord has blessed me. It's not me. As a matter of fact, I didn't deserve any of it. But God's been patient with me. And He's been faithful. And time upon time, He's given me. Look at the wonderful wife He's given me. Look at these children. He's given me skills that I can work and work hard for His glory. You see, this is an opportunity here for Jacob to remember and to recount how God has blessed him. This is the humility that has come to Jacob. But then we see something a little bit different in verse 12. It again reminds us that Bible people are real people, just like you and just like me. After this great scene... Now, you have to understand the context of this. Jacob has just fled from Laban. God has preserved him from Laban. He's been on the way, struggling in prayer all night long. God comes down and meets with him, tells him he's changed, gives him a new name, and now brings him to Esau, and every fear has melted away and has vanished. It could not have turned out better. God has taken care of every single detail. And Esau says in verse 12, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Jacob has been changed. He has a new name. He has been changed in his being. He's older. He's wiser. Remember, every time he takes a step, it reminds him that God's at work in his life because he's lame. He's been changed in his trust. He's been trusting the Lord instead of himself. And what happens here? He falls back into his old ways, doesn't he? Esau says, let's go. And Jacob said, well, you know, the kids have been on a long journey. And, and, you know, the goats, oh, you don't even want to hear about the goats. The goats and the sheep, if I take them, they're going to die. How about you just, you go on ahead and I'll meet up with you later. And then Esau says, well, let me at least leave some men for you. These are dangerous parts. Let me leave people to protect you. And Jacob says, oh, no, 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 no. No, everything's fine. You just go right on ahead, and soon enough, I'll be down in Seir with you. And Esau says, okay. And he goes. But what's interesting about this is Jacob has absolutely no intention of going to Seir. None. For two reasons. First, I think he's still at least a little bit afraid of Esau. He doesn't want to get Esau in a bad mood later. But secondly, God has already met him and told him to go back to Bethel, where God had met him. So Jacob, in returning back, is to return back to his land, not to Esau's land, back to the promised land, where Isaac and Rebekah are, and where all of their kin are. So he doesn't have any intention at all of doing this. So what's going on here? You know, Jacob is faced with a really hard choice. Sometimes you're faced with hard choices, aren't you? Someone comes up to you and they begin in a crowd to make fun of some other person that's not there and you're wondering, should I speak up for them or should I just be quiet or do I need to join in? I don't want everyone to be mad at me. 
And what would happen? Sometimes you're faced with a choice to be honest. And when you're honest, you know that you are deserving of punishment. This happens every once in a while, doesn't it, kids? When mom says something like, did you eat all your food or did you throw it away? Did you clean your room? Did you put your contacts in? Did you take a shower? Did you help your brother? And when it would just be so easy to look and with wonderful blinking eyes say, yes, mother, I did. When in reality, you haven't. And it's because we don't want to face the consequences of our actions. But this is not just a child thing, is it? This happens to those of us who are adults. It's how we deal with people at work. It's how husbands answer their wives' questions. It's how wives answer their husbands' questions. You see, Jacob is faced here with a decision... And all I think we can say here is that he falls absolutely flat on his face. He lies. There's no way to sugarcoat this. And you see, this causes a problem because some people are so upset, they think, well, Jacob couldn't be lying because he was just with God at Peniel. Jacob's a good guy. He's a Christian. Christians don't lie ever. This can't be the case. And so they want to do one of two things. They want to say either this isn't a lie I think what Jacob meant was he would follow on, but he got busy and he forgot. Or they say, you know, Jacob might not even be a Christian here. He might not even be a believer because believers don't lie ever. And you see, we can be tempted to those same things. We tend to excuse our sin by saying it doesn't really fit into a category. Right? Let me tell you, before I was in the ministry, I was a lawyer. And you all should understand that. Because every one of you is a lawyer. Every one of you has an inner lawyer whenever anyone walks up to you and says, you shouldn't have done that, should you? And your lawyer pops up, may it please the court. My client should not have to answer these questions. He has rights. And by the way, he didn't do it. And by the way, if he did it, it was his person's fault. And by the way, this person made him do it. This is what we do. We resist any thought about our own sin. We play it off. But you see, what Jacob does here is he goes a bit back to his old self. He lies. You may think that trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith instantly changes your character. But it doesn't. You see, this is the difference between the two great cardinal doctrines of justification and sanctification. When we are justified, when we are made right with God, when we accept the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe upon Him so that we might be saved from the wrath of God, death and hell, it is all done. Jesus said, it is finished. But God has chosen in His infinite wisdom not then to take us in that moment up from our bodies into heaven to be with Him perfect forever, but He lets us, He permits us to walk upon the earth 
and to learn obedience. Much as our Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience through suffering, through experiencing the sin of others, through having to make difficult choices. And you see, that's what sanctification is. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for you. It is hard work. You must work at your sanctification. You must sweat. You must make hard decisions. You must make decisions you don't want to make. You must follow through. You must go day upon day upon day. But the difference is God is there with you. By His grace. Empowering you by His Spirit. Working His work in you and through you. You are not on your own. You do not have to solve all of the problems. You must work hard because God is at work in you. And God is at work in Jacob here. He's not done yet. So you should take great encouragement from that. If God wasn't done with Jacob after 20 years, He's probably not done with you yet. I dare say, every single one of you has something you need to work on before the Lord. A sin you need to kill. Dedication to the Lord that you need to inflame. But we should take encouragement because God is with us. He does not abandon us to ourselves. And we see this here in the last bit of Jacob. Because you see, God doesn't leave us with a picture of Jacob, the liar, than the cheat. Do you see what happens next? Jacob comes safely to the city of Shechem in verse 18, which is in the land of Canaan on his way from Paden Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Two things that we see. We see that Jacob is thankful. He is thankful for the deliverance that the Lord has provided to him. He came safely to the city of Shechem. He came back 180 degrees turned around from the way he left. He left running out of town as fast as he could because he anticipated death and pain and difficulty. And now he comes back and what the Lord has worked in him is such that he is now safe. And he's thankful for what the Lord has done in his life. But even more than that, in verse 20, he reminds us of what should characterize our lives. Because you see, he's also thankful for God himself. He builds an altar and he calls it El Elohe Israel. A good translation of that would be, God is the God of Israel. Who's Israel? See, we think it's the people, but it isn't. It's Jacob. He's going all the way back to what he had said before, that if you will keep me and if you will bless me, you will be my God. And he says, God is my God. He is Israel's God. And not only is he my God, he is the God of me, the changed person. He doesn't say God is the God of Jacob. He says God is the God of Israel. 
And even in the midst of knowing that he has sinned, knowing that he has a long way to go, knowing that God is at work in his life, he knows that God is there with him and will never abandon him. God is his God. Is the Lord your God? Will the Lord God be with you today and next week and when your kids go off to school and when they get married and when you get married and when you have your own children? Is God your God? For you see, that is what we are called to. We are not called to have all the answers. We are not called to be perfect at every time. God is shaping us. But we are called to recognize that God is our God and He will be with us and that will be the true blessing to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, O Lord, that You are Jacob's God, that You are Israel's God, and therefore, O Lord, that You are our God. Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us that you would remind us that we have far to go and we have much need of your grace. Be with us, O Lord, and bless us by the power of your word and your spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.